0: Welcome to the Adventure Therapy Collective Podcast. Our offices are mountains, rivers, and the woods. Climbing, hiking, and paddling are just what the doctor ordered.
1: Russell, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast today. We're we're super excited to have you here and to learn a little bit about your, your work in Oregon, your equine work, your polyvagal work, and your long history Doing adventure-based work in general. So we're just super excited to have you here.
0: I'm I'm psyched to be able to get a chance to talk with you guys. I enjoy it whenever I get a chance. Daniel's local mm. for me here in the Portland metro area, and Will's a little bit further away. Uh, <laughs> but grateful any chance to get to talk to you guys.
1: Yeah, my internet was giving me crap, and I was like, I wonder if Russell's at his office. I should just drive over there, and <laughs> we should make Will call in while we sit there and chat. <laughs> I would have been very jealous. <laughs> So, Russell, you have done a lot of work within the experiential realm from Wilderness Field Guide to Adventure Therapy to TAPG Leadership Council to uh, equine work and experiential work with Holly Bagel. Could you tell us a little bit about kind of how you got into this work, how you started doing adventure based and experiential work and how it got you to where you are today?
0: This is less than an hour podcast uh, and I'm old so I'll, I'll try <laughs> no, to condense need
1: it. No, the entire thing, the full history, <laughs> every detail, dates, alibis, all of the above.
0: Sure. Well, it, it really, I think it goes back to starting out in scouting back when I was a, a, a young person going in through earning my Eagle Scout badge and so doing lots of camping and outdoor stuff and learning experientially that way, moving into working with 4-H Youth Development. In the um, in Kentucky, here in the states, and and I, a lot of people think about 4-H as being cows, cooking, and country fair, and I was actually more in the realm of leadership development, communication skills, planning, and running things. Ended up being as a freshman in college, the state 4-H council president, and we planned and ran a week long conference for all sorts of teens from around the state of Kentucky for 800 teens that came in from different parts of Kentucky. The year before I took that on that conference, it had a regular part of a two hour thing that, that happened that was basically a track and field meet, which was really fun for the 5% of the participants of the 800 (laughs) folks from around Kentucky who had athletic skills and ability and boring as hell for the rest of the folks and i had come across this book called new games which some folks may be familiar with from the 70s the new games book that had a series of activities in it and they were all about play hard play fair nobody gets hurt and they tended to be pretty non-competitive types of activities and i said everybody is bored to death of doing this track and field thing that suits Mm. the ringers that come from around the state. But what about everybody else? So I ended up taking that book and training 45 teens and about 20 adults to facilitate two hours of new games activities for the 800 folks. It was really successful experiential learning is a big part of the 4-H program as well but that was my first taste of I like this facilitation stuff this training stuff and I felt pretty good at it ended up getting to go to a program called American Youth Foundation Camp Vista Camp Minnewanka in Michigan and New Hampshire and they had national leadership conferences every year that were about 10 days that was my first exposure to low ropes course work and high ropes course work and I was like oh this is awesome. Instead of having these contrived activities, different from new games that were all about just playing having fun, but contrived activities like there are 11 of you in a life raft and there's only enough supplies for 10 of you or eight of you to survive. How are you going to decide who gets to stay? And these low challenge course activities were all about how do we work to solve a problem together and how do we understand group dynamics in a way that can help us with that. So I was exposed to that and immediately said, I want to get trained in this. I want to facilitate it. I did that leadership conference for 10 days or two weeks, and then talked myself onto the staff for the following two weeks <laughs> to be uh, to get to stay there for an extra two weeks. And to get to, again, mostly I wanted to learn more from the guy who was the lead facilitator, who was actually an organizational consultant Connected really tightly with the folks at Project Adventure, Carl Runke, Cowsells, and Cobras had come out um, in the in the mid to late '70s as well. So that led to years of working, different years of working on that staff, um, going into then. National Outdoor Leadership School to do instructor's course and outdoor educator's course because I was like, okay, I want to take this high ropes course stuff, low ropes course stuff, take it to the next level and do it in the field, leading expeditions and stuff like that with students. The reality was I had very little (laughs) to no personal wilderness experience beyond backpacking. So I was not the typical mountaineer or typical climber who could pull down hard and lead Five, even back then, five nine. So I was like, okay, what am I really good at? I was really good at working with people and and facilitating. So I ended up getting referred to and worked with a program based in Pennsylvania that did thirty day wilderness trips with adjudicated youth out of all parts of Pennsylvania, and we spent ten days on the Appalachian Trail in Pennsylvania, and then rode in a van. Somehow survived. Um, in a fan full of adjudicated folks down to Georgia and North Carolina, and would do 10 days on the Chattooga River in North Carolina, and then do some climbing around Table Rock Mountain in uh, North Carolina as well. That was where I, I suddenly went from working with, having years of experience working with teens who really had all the opportunities and resources, who did not have adverse childhood experiences or complex trauma. Issues to suddenly I was surrounded by folks that were nothing like me. And, and I ended up liking it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was so much harder than what I had done in working with hotshot high school and college students for previous years. And, and what I found was part of what, what you're getting to and, and likely what we'll end up talking about is it was all about how, how I was able to be present with them. I wasn't used to being around lots of African-American kids or Latino kids um, or, again, kids from struggling families. I wasn't used to being around the level of emotional dysregulation and lack of distress tolerance that that these kids were all about. Hmm. <laughs> and so, as you all know from the work you've done, there's a benefit to taking folks into a novel environment that they aren't used to before. and. and Engaging in skill mastery, teaching them how to do things that they didn't know how to do before from everything from sleeping management, how to set up your sleeping bag and, and select pad and all that kind of stuff teaching mm-hmm. kids. Uh, I remember one kid who had trouble sleeping, partially because he hadn't paid attention and, and we said. Well, how did you have your sleep stuff set up? And he climbed in his sleeping bag and showed us. And he went in head first. He had slept the whole night with his head at the feet of the sleeping bag. <laughs> it was really uncomfortable in mm. doing that. Well, that was
1: how I'm supposed to be using my sleeping bag.
0: No, and 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 so <laughs> I, from that point on, in that particular program, we're like, you put your feet down here, and your your head goes up yeah. here. <laughs>
2: usually before our ice hockey season starts, our team all goes out, we all go camping together. And uh, it was the most remote version of camping we had done. Um, and we're along the river here in, in South Australia. And we had we have a friend who is finishing, he was finishing at the time his PhD in, in physics. He was shooting lasers at molecules and doing all this amazing stuff. And he called me and said, Will, I don't have a tent. So do you have extra gear? I said, no problem. And I set it up and through the course of the night, I had just totally forgot to throw a sleeping bag in his tent and he didn't ask, didn't say anything. He comes out in the morning and he says, I was pretty cold last night. And I went, <laughs> Oh shit. Sorry. I totally forgot. He had wrapped himself in the rain fly and said, I didn't know sleeping bags were this thin. <laughs> and, <laughs> and this guy's like a genius, you know? Yep. Um, but I wanted, I wrote down a couple of notes. First off, um, before I came to uh, Australia, Daniel, everything Russell just described about a program of like one week of backpacking, one week on the water, maybe a week of climbing at the end where you're maybe in a base camp. Write that down for when we start our program when I move back. Don't don't forget that idea because that was a 10 year ago dream of mine. So we need to bring that bring that sort of programming back from the dead instead of the same thing day in, day out. Um, the long haul. You brought up sort of your your complex trauma and your being present with people. And I was thinking, you said you kind of, you were doing this experiential work starting in the 70s. Is that is that timeline right?
0: Actually started in the early 80s. Okay. The, my high school experience with, with both scouting and then 4-H was in the 70s.
2: And what I'm wondering, and this is this... Uh... Might feel like a gotcha question, which I don't mean it to, and I know you're not scared of those anyway. But (laughs) I'm always really curious when you kind of you start working with this different clientele. You're going, these people don't look like me, don't have experiences like me. And since really the early '90s, I mean, the field of mental health and psychotherapy is tragically late to the trauma-informed game, and I wonder. When did you realize this really was about adverse childhood experiences, about being more present with people than focusing on the, well, today's rock climbing day. We have to get everybody to rock climb. That'll be a successful day. When the trauma literature sort of tells us that stuff doesn't really matter as much as the the connection before correction mindset.
0: And this was the folks in our program. We weren't therapists. It wasn't considered wilderness. Therapy. It was therapeutic and we, we had very little training. We might've gotten some stuff, uh, been exposed to William Glasser. Um, I think, but, but that was about it. So it was literally how to survive in quotes. I took the, I took the technical training, so to speak from Knowles. So I was really comfortable, which is a, is an issue, and a consideration for being present with people is, am I comfortable myself? Do I feel safe? Do I feel, first of all, physically safe? That was an issue that sometimes came up with, with new interns that we had come out in the field, even back then. But do I know how to stay warm? Do I know how to stay dry? Do I know how to eat properly? Am I okay taking a dump over a hole in the ground and um, doing that for 30 days? Staying hydrated. Not a hydrated. problem for me. I'd rather do all that, that in time. a public toilet any day of the week. <laughs> All that's, oh, absolutely. The
1: hardest skill to teach also.
0: So there were various incidents, but one that, uh, a couple that stand out. One of the first courses I did, I was, we were hiking up a hill, backpacking up a hill, big wide trail. This African-American young woman, 14, had a nine-month-old kid, not with her, but it had a nine, had a kid who was nine months old. She was walking up the hill in front of us and she turned around and said, And she was struggling like everybody was because it was early in the course. And she said, now I know how Jesus felt. Turned back around and kept walking. And I'm not, I don't identify as Christian, but what I was struck by there was she was, she was identifying with the struggle and the effort that it took. And she didn't throw her pack down and say, I'm not going to go any further because you're torturing me in the way that Jesus was tortured. But she just noted that that was going on for her, that this experience was significant to her. Those specific incidents aside, what I figured out very quickly was that I was very different from the folks that I was with, and I could still have fun with them. My favorite music is still reggae, mm-hmm. and I could sing reggae tunes and talk about reggae music. And they're like, dude, I know you're a stoner. Uh, <laughs> you can't You can't like reggae and not smoke a bunch of weed. I was like, no, um, mm. or uh, man, you guys must be on speeders. There's no way you can, your packs are like twice as heavy as ours. And you, you guys don't seem to get exhausted. And I was like, well, part of that's because you guys move about as fast as snails. So <laughs> even though, even though I'm really out of shape, relatively speaking, I can easily walk at the snail space all day long mm. um, with these, with these heavy packs on. So I don't know if that starts, that gets word part of what you're asking
2: a lot of how i've changed about the way i work is i look at that and i sort of go yeah i'm just all i'm all i'm worrying about is this behavior and i'm not doing anything deeper than and of course when it comes to risk we got to keep our group safe but i am thinking about how do we go deeper than simply going this kid is acting naughty which i i have i have two teenagers of my own there are times they act naughty uh they're they're you know um, and we can go deeper than that.
0: And and yeah, and I again, we didn't have training. I figured that out only trying it that one time to yes. see what it was like. I had now there that's were a other hard people way to have to
1: learn it. You have to just learn figuring that out along the way.
0: Yeah. It, to fast forward to sometime post grad school, ten years ish later, where I was in some training or seminar, and the the instructor said something along the lines of, well, for those of you that are new to the field, fairly new, remember when you were just starting and how hard it was to work with clients because everything was brand new? And I didn't say this, but I thought to myself, I had three years as a, what's now called a field guide or wilderness instructor, where I had to learn how to be present. And I didn't have a therapy or therapeutic intention or treatment plan, but it was to provide a safe, physically safe and emotionally safe experience for the for the kids I was out there with and they were in a novel environment once they believed that this wasn't a survival course that they were going to have enough food that they were going to be able to stay warm and stay dry and the programs that I worked program that I worked with back in Pennsylvania we were in the Pisgas in North Carolina which are also nicknamed the Pisgahs because of the rainfall being comparable not not as bad but comparable to the Olympic rainforest yeah. <laughs> in in the northwest here so we were constant we were starting fires it was one pot meals over wood fires um we didn't use camp stoves and they got very capable and competent in pitching tarps to be able to to do fires to pitching tarps for their for their sleeping stuff that we didn't carry tents all that kind of stuff so that mastery of skills doing things that would never they don't need when they go back home um, in their urban communities um, but they felt good about it and and that shared experience again having fun having them teach we had again african american kids and white kids and the white kids were all into music like slayer and metallica and anthrax (laughs) metal you know metal music back then and the african american kids were into NWA and
1: I'm picturing you out there with like maybe someone brought it, you've got an acoustic guitar and you're doing this like hybrid with some slayer and some NWA with these things around (laughs) the campfire.
0: Yeah. So (laughs) so so that kind of mix. And again, it was all about being present. So I worked there for a year, did seven, seven 30-day courses um in a year, and then moved out to Oregon to work with Pacific rest hour bound school. And that was, we had a small program that took kids for 21 days in the central Cascades and more, more explicit top roping kind of stuff and mountaineering that I really felt I came out, came out here to Oregon and I definitely felt like I'd didn't have the same skill base as my co-instructors. Again, that was not a therapy program, but we were working with adjudicated kids from the state lockup McLaren um, and the, the juvenile lockup in the Portland metro area as well. So again, most of them had very little experience in being outside of the city limits of Portland. Uh, and the, But the same sort of things we were able to apply and and that's where I, again, felt really comfortable compared to most of my co-instructors who were legitimately good at teaching mountaineering and, and could lead five, nine. Um, we didn't do any lead climbs or anything like that, but I was really comfortable with the facilitation kind of stuff and applying that.
1: But then what led you from that point to say, okay, I've done this, I'm starting to build these skills, but I'm going to take the jump I'm going to go to grad school. I'm going to get my MSW and I'm going to take this and take it that next step further. Cause it seems like, I mean, you have that connection piece and you're starting to put that together and realize that that's where your skill was in doing this work. But then, I mean, that's still a huge leap to go from, yeah, you know, I'm doing outward bound work. I'm doing Knowles work to saying I'm going to be an MSW and I'm going to figure out how to integrate this stuff.
2: Which is the right degree to choose? You have He's counseling, the best psychology. You chose the right one, Russell. Right. Good, good picking.
0: Yes, us, <laughs> us social workers stand together. <laughs> uh, the, a couple of things. One, uh, I worked with that program in Oregon. Uh, then at my first AEE conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico, I met a, a woman spoke and said, hey, "I am starting this this program for educated youth in Hawaii." Um. I'm really excited about it. And I immediately like cornered her in an appropriate way after the, <laughs> after the TAPG meeting and said, Hey, I'm really interested. How do I, how do you, how do I convince you to hire me to be a part of that program setup? Um, ended up going over there and, and being the program what was, I was sort of the course director field director she was the program director. She was an LCSW, uh, Howie, which means white foreigner. It means foreigner in Hawaiian, but um, basically it's the white folks. They don't call local Japanese Howley. Um And set up, help set up, and run a program where we took kids from the state lockup and took them over to the Big Island, and we would travel from sea level. To the top of Mauna Loa, which is, I believe, it's the highest mountain in the world if you count it from sea level. From yeah, it's just a story about that. The bottom of the sea. Wow. But anyway, that was uh, I, setting up that program. I was a that was the first time I was sort of in a leadership position, and I we had local, local Filipino, local Japanese, uh, not Filipino Portuguese um, staff. And in, in training them, one of the major things I said was, and this was after I'd spent two years, basically, of field work. I said, these kids are going to call you names. They're going to curse you out. Um, and it's not personal. Yeah. And I again, I didn't have the language of polyvagal theory or felt sense of safety or of emotional Dysregulation, distress tolerance, DBT kind of skills stuff. Mm. Didn't know any of that at the time, but I said, what they're doing, they're acting out is not personal. It's because they're scared and they don't know any other way to express their fear than to attack you. Mm. So if you're able to just focus on their behavior, and again, because we were having fun a lot of the time and we were teaching skills a lot of the time, things were not non-stop crisis intervention or putting out fires or that kind of stuff so we were able to build they were able to build relationships with the kids and i said um so what they're doing is basically what you'll be going back to and back to and back to is i really like you your behavior is not working for you Mm. your behavior is not okay but you're a really good person i can see that I had one of the staff come up to me during the first course after like 14 or 15 days, and he was crying, this is an adult. And he was like, he he said, you can edit this if you need to. He said, you fucker, you were right. (laughs) Said, this is hard, this is really, really hard. And I get that it's not about me, it's not personal. But these kids have dealt with so much pain. Had Had a kid on one of those courses, we gave him a birthday cake to celebrate. I think it was his 14th birthday. In Hawaii, at the time, they locked up kids in two buildings at their state juvenile prison based on size, not their offense. Mm-hmm. So this little Filipino kid was in the smaller unit. And then we had like a 225-pound Samoan who was actually in for murder, the only kid that I've ever worked with that had that kind of a history but this little this little filipino kid who also by the way had a scar big ass scar on his lower leg from where his leg was broken compound fracture by one of his parents when he was younger but we gave this guy a cake and and started singing happy birthday and he was like he whispered to me and one of the instructors what am i supposed to do i never got a cake before and we were like oh well." You blow the candles out. <laughs> um, so, again, these kids were coming from a place where, and of course, those are extreme examples, but this instructor who was a talented, capable adult together adult was overwhelmed in seeing the level of struggle and, and discomfort these kids had. And because he was able to apply the same kind of things without being a therapist, with me as a pseudo therapist, only in that I kind of had figured it out how to be present, they were able to be more successful and to have less burnout. uh, Because they weren't fighting against things that they had no control over. They didn't have any control over the kids adverse childhood experiences or over their trauma.
2: I think it's so it's, you know, coming to Australia and starting my own program and having being in control of hiring staff is at first, I really had a hard time with staff that could regulate themselves, and I had no idea how to train somebody for it. So I got people with incredible experience, or I'd get someone with just impeccable an impeccable outdoor education resume. And it reached day 10 of an expedition, which is, that's relatively long in the Australian context. And I would go, I am losing this person, and they're tired, and they're exhausted, And the kids can just sense it and I I can tell. And one of the things that ended up happening and it was sad before COVID because I had the best team uh, before a lot of stuff was put on hold here. But my core of expedition staff all had incredible hospitality background, working in bars, working as servers at restaurants. And they were just so good at dealing with what on the surface appears to be an angry customer and not shooting it back at them and going, let's sort this out and things like that. But what popped into my head listening to those stories is it does, I I mean, all of us are advocates for adventure, experiential, outdoor therapy, whatever words we wanna use. And it just reminds me that even though we want this exciting kind of uh, out of the box, out of the counseling room therapy to be recognized as good as anything else, It doesn't mean we want that everybody should do it, that we can't take Sigmund Freud and go, hey, go climb Mount Aloha, uh, a 13,000 foot mountain and uh, do some psychoanalysis up there, which, by the way, that's a that's a big effort mountain to go to from sea level. That's (laughs) impressive with a group of kids. And yeah, I just think it's it's such a reminder that we have to you know, if we were going to host a dinner party, we got to think about why do we want to do it? What's gonna be the outcome of this dinner party? Who are we inviting? What are we gonna do if things go off base? And with expedition residential work, it's often quite similar. We need to think about how are we gonna stay on top of things if we start burning the food, if these two people don't like each other, and how can we stay in that leadership, caring, loving, being not only the full-time parent out there, but the full-time rescuer, survival assistant, and therapist at the same time.
0: And it's really like I was mentioning before we started recording in conversations I've had with y'all previous. To me, I, I'm bummed that I don't do as much stuff outdoors and that I don't do as much explicit adventure-based work. But everything I do, even now that I'm restricted just in the past few weeks, the building I work out of has been closed to the general public because of COVID cases it's all about how well am I able to stay emotionally regulated myself? And we can talk more about polyvagal theory and automatic protective nervous system response and that kind of stuff. But ultimately, whether it was in Pennsylvania, whether it was in Oregon, Hawaii, the work I did when I was in doing my undergrad on Olympia with adjudicated kids and doing groups in the areas around Olympia, the way to manage groups was to support the other folks' emotional sense and felt sense of safety. And that had to come from me. I needed to be able to manage my own sense of emotional regulation in order to then create opportunities for co-regulation with with the folks I was working with. And that was done through fun. I I can be a big-time goofball with, again, doing portable challenge activities in those settings where I was doing activities that, at first... You know, the cool teenagers like, I'm not playing no stupid effing game. And then they would find that they were having fun or they were challenged by the task. One of the activities that I don't know how much people do anymore, but I call it the table traverse, where if you have a good solid table, you start with everybody on top of the table. And the task is to get everybody to traverse the length of the table underneath without hitting the ground. So everybody holding onto them and sort of dragging them Without letting him touch the ground underneath, and yeah, it's a strength-based thing. But if you've got enough people, it doesn't become as much about strength. So something as silly as that, on its face, they would get really excited when they were able to accomplish mm-hmm. something like that. And and there was a bit of you know the testosterone thing. It, ultimately, it's it's same thing I do when I'm connecting with people video-wise, with telehealth. It's how can I be present for them, um, and we can. Talk about the whole challenge of attempting to do quote therapy mm-hmm. via telehealth. I never thought that I, that if Especially if COVID if hadn't an experiential happened, experiential guy like yourself, yeah, I would have never, I would have never done it. Um, intentionally done telehealth until COVID hit. So I, I brought up a whole bunch of things there, but hopefully, again, going back to the idea of being present. The quick wrap around to what my point was about sharing Hawaii, besides those different stories. The woman who was the program director was an LCSW. And I was like, okay, this is, it makes sense to me again, to do a master's in social work where you're focusing on person in the environment, not the person as pathology, not maybe taking one class in psychopathology, how to diagnose and label somebody. But otherwise it was all about a whole range of things about how people exist in the world and how we connect And interact socially, and I was like, from the point I left Hawaii, I was like, I'm going to get my degree, and I'm going to get licensed, and then I'm going to figure out how to do experiential based work in an office setting. There are programs in the U.S. now that that do that. Mm. It's very difficult (laughs) um, to get going. There aren't aren't that many, but that was my goal: was to do combination of experiential based stuff, not do expedition things, um, not necessarily spend. Okay, this week we're gonna go to the rock gym. This week we're gonna go to the challenge course. This week we're gonna go on a hike, but literally how can I do things more in an office-based setting?
1: That's interesting that you say that because I think that the public opinion and like the public perception of like what adventure therapy is and wilderness therapy is is yeah, you're up in the Rocky Mountains and bow drill and a fire, but but yeah, a lot of the best people that I know, some of the strongest adventure therapists are people that are doing this work in an office and that are able to take that and translate it to a school-based setting or an office-based setting or a hospital or something along those lines. So uh, that I mean, it just it fits where we do the work. So that makes a lot of sense. Additionally, one thing that we wanted to ask about is we wanted to ask about polyvagal theory and how you've brought that into your work into your practice, how you brought that into adventure-based work and how you utilize it in general. And when you were talking about your journey towards your MSW, it also, you use a lot of terminology that sounded like that was kind of your journey towards finding polyvagal as a theory that really fit. So could you describe a little bit about what polyvagal theory is for, for our listeners who might not know much about it and how you've integrated that type of work into into your clinical work in general, but also into the adventure and equine work that you've
0: done? Polyvagal theory is was developed by a guy named Stephen Porges uh, 30, probably 40 years ago now. Doing, he's a neuroscientist who did research with mice and looking at heart rate variability. And um, I'm, I, I don't pretend to uh, know all the research side of it, but the extension was folks Um, clinical folks therapists were looking at sort of a core idea that our nervous system evolutionarily speaking is is about protecting us and keeping us safe so our our nervous system basically scanning the environment second by second am i safe or am i going to get eaten and it's thousands of years behind the reality that we're not surrounded by predators anymore so it tends to overreact an exaggerate response in a way that contributes to symptoms of anxiety and symptoms of depression in particular. So what we look for from the moment we're born is safe connection. People that come from an attachment theory perspective, it's we're, we're going for secure attachment. So from the moment we're born, usually with our mom, we seek that sense of, of safe connection that's pre-verbal. And then as I go through experiences in life, if, if I'm not experiencing safe connection, safe connection is literally the ability to be fully present with somebody else. So I can learn easily, more easily. I can hear what the other person is saying. I can engage in healthy relationships with the other person. I can be a, the most productive employee, the, the best student if I'm feeling safe and emotionally regulated. If my nervous system is sensing subconsciously, unconsciously, without otherwise rational or logical input, it says danger, light danger. My nervous system goes into fight or flight mode. Heart rate increases. My respiration increases. My muscles tense up. I start pumping adrenaline and cortisol and in the same way that my nervous system is constantly letting me breathe, constantly saying blink, sweat, digest food, uh, heartbeat, all without thinking about it. My nervous system is, is doing that same thing and scanning the environment for safety or danger or life threat. So that experience of uh, that anticipation of life threat, of excuse me, danger is ultimately future focused. So what might happen, what could happen? That's why my nervous system is getting ready to run away, climb a tree, or fight against the predator. And we experience those, that future focus as symptoms of anxiety. So uh, whether it's ADHD, like in my case, um, in terms of struggling with focus, or other types of anxiety, that's really directly related to, rather than being present, that future focus. We need that future focus. It's, a, it's an appropriate thing when we're driving in traffic and somebody pulls in front of us, we're able to hit the brakes, swerve without thinking about. It. We get up in the morning when the alarm goes off, which would be really hard if we were in that zen, safe, connected state. Playing sports is is something that involves a blend of that safe and that mobilized nervous system response. My nervous system says, again, for whatever reason, it's not logical it's not rational but we're not just in danger but we're in life threat that we could die Mm. it goes into shutdown mode immobilization so go ahead will
2: no i was just thinking the same thing when you see a snake on the snake shoots out in front of you you typically jump back before you have any ability to yeah oh my gosh that's a snake of course Um,
1: the australian goes right to the snakes
2: (laughs) yeah Exactly. I was wondering, not to pick this scab, I guess, but how do we do, how do we take this into consideration in something like wilderness therapy, where day one for a lot of young people is like crossing a pretty serious threshold. You're going to see adults that you've never met before. So you're going, is this person safe? You've been taken out into the woods, not knowing where you are, not knowing how to leave. You're thinking, is, is this safe? how can we do that better with with the information that you've shared about that we know that people are looking out for safety looking out for or looking out for threats and that system can get jumbled up when you have extensive adverse childhood experiences and trauma how do we do your kind of far removed wilderness therapy with this sort of stuff in mind
0: again not knowing all the language around this or having that perspective even back in almost 30 years ago in setting up this program in Hawaii I was saying that my bias is that the program starts the moment the client or participant hears about it mm-hmm. so I need to do the best I possibly can in informing anybody who will say anything about our program was called Hu'ulu let the mountains produce Um, so anybody that that's going to be referring or talking about our program, I want them to understand as much as possible about it, uh, interacting, giving the kids information ahead of time, tricky in, in the programs that I worked with then, and it's a big issue still now, of course, is voluntary versus involuntary Mm -hmm. treatment, Um, and consent. There was limited consent in these cases because the kids were like they were given a choice they they were told you could do this i think this was the same in all these programs you could do this and and then be released from parole or probation Hmm. um, upon completion of this program or you can continue to stay in probation and in your local community or in in the lockup in the case of hawaii uh, mclaren the the state lockup in in oregon so they had a choice of whether or not to to be involved and then it was a matter of giving them as much information as we could but here's what to expect here's if you've never been outside of course we can't Mm. you just got to believe us these people that you've never met before but giving them as much information as possible giving everybody that they're going to have interaction with as much information as possible so that's the starting point point. and then the back then it was doing what folks would call a t- traditional outward bound model of phases mm. where you have the orientation phase where they come to a base camp setting and they're you're not traveling you're just teaching sleep systems you're teaching how to if it's set building wood fires you're teaching how to build the wood fires you're teaching um, if it's using camp stoves like we did in oregon And in Hawaii, how to use those basic meal preparation, how to set up your tarps, all that kind of stuff. And then doing lots of group building kinds of activities, as well as as having been clear on what sort of behavior is acceptable and unacceptable. The truth is we are going to be we aren't going to be around medical care. So if you punch somebody and they need medical care, we're going to have to it's not going to be easy to get them there. So those are all the kinds of things is give people as much information as I can, give them some choice in the process, and then keep following through with that. Engage, spend so much time on engagement and connection and not not worrying about, okay, we we need to start hiking today. We need to start covering miles.
2: I want to switch gears just before we before we run out of time. And I hope uh, when
0: I had some well, I have a
1: gears I want to switch to. So you switch your gears and then I'm gonna switch my gears. I'm switching to the same gears. I'm switching to TAPG. Okay, perfect. Okay. I want to switch into Parker, Baums Johnson. So we got to have time for both of those. Okay.
2: One of the things when we look at the the timeline of therapy, and I brought up the question of, you know, everyone now is trauma-informed. Nobody was trauma-informed in the 70s and 80s. And now it's just part of our everyday language. No different than genetic predisposition was part of everyone's language in the 90s. And so we, you know, these things change with time. And you've been involved with the Therapeutic Adventure Professionals group for, for how long, Russell?
0: About 30 years.
2: For about 30 years. So Daniel and I for about 10, not nothing. So I wonder, what have you noticed about the evolution of that group or changes that have occurred over those 30 years in that group?
0: Parts of that time, I've been less involved. I've gotten more involved recently um, in my work with supporting Parker Bounds Johnson Foundation that provides financial support for families, sending kids into wilderness therapy programs in the US, mm-hmm. working with the involuntary transport task force that just pretty much is wrapped up. Some of the folks published an article, Mike Gass and Christine Norton I have an article that was published a couple months ago about that, as well as working supporting research that's that's starting around that. But my sense as a as somebody who's kind of been on the fringes more in the last 10, 15 years than I was before that, my sense is that TAPG as opposed to the industry in quotes. And again, my bias as an outsider, I don't work for any wilderness therapy programs um, or anything like that. My bias is that they've kept up and I've always had TAPG in particular, the folks that I've been familiar with have had the best interest of participants throughout.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned Parker Bounds for a moment there. And I just feel like that's a, it's a cool organization that a lot of people outside of Oregon might not know about. I think some people do in the wilderness therapy world, but, but you're doing some cool work there. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your work with Parker Bounds Johnson foundation and what they do and who they are.
0: they are, Private foundation that was set up by um, a couple folks whose son got a lot of uh, benefit out of doing wilderness-based uh, therapy programs in the past, and you can look up pbjf.org for for more detail about their story and and lots more detail about what they do. But but I'm a board member, and my primary role is outreach to clinical folks. Um and it's really providing financial aid and support. They also we also provide support for parents whose kids are currently involved in in wilderness or are alumni of wilderness programs. I think Daniel, you might have been involved with some of the Wild Hearts program that's I haven't
1: made it to one yet, but it seems like a really cool program. It's
0: monthly activities for alums, particularly the students, the the young people, teens and young adults that have been in wilderness programs.
1: Cool. Um, so yeah, they put together like community style activities where people go hiking, climbing, doing other things with kids that have came back from wilderness and to help them connect with one another, right? Yeah. Awesome. Super cool. Thanks for sharing uh about that. That's excellent stuff. Yeah. I think a lot of our listeners will be excited to hear. So Russell
2: we freeze you for 50 years right like austin powers so you're frozen you're is it do, how do you pronounce the word cryogenically frozen is that the word yeah okay yeah. so russell's cryogenically frozen for 50 years and we we wake you up uh like austin powers you do the world's longest pee and then you're plop back down into the world of adventure, wilderness, experiential therapy, or even just big picture mental behavioral healthcare care in general, what would you notice that would indicate that things have really progressed for our field? You've been a part of it, whether you called it adventure therapy or not, for a long time. What would be your the sign that things have gotten better?
0: Uh, the first thing I was thinking that the challenges are almost greater than the opportunities. When you consider things like, I think it's called better help. The the drive over the past year and a half in particular to move toward digital based Mm -hmm. mental health services uh, where people are getting their support via text messages and emails. My hope would be that that didn't take over and that we haven't lost contact with each other as part of that process. Mm. My hope would be that we are able to take advantage of the best work that's being done. Uh, Part of University of New Hampshire is doing a a research study. They just got the approval I heard today. So they're gonna be a a research study that has 80, 80 participants total. Um, teens voluntary consent only 40 of those folks will go to randomized study and you two are the researchers not me so i apologize if i'm misstating the, oh, the good. language but um These 40 will nice. go to short-term residential 40 will go to wilderness therapy programs and the idea will be to to figure out the the pros and the benefits in comparing sort of apples to apples With wilderness therapy, to other, Mm. they're also involving. They're training, I think it is thirty-two folks from a program called Outward Bound Adventures, that's based in Southern California, who were actually the first people in the United States to use the term Outward Bound for their programming. They started in like nineteen fifty-eight, and Outward Bound USA started in sixty-two or sixty-three. So their uh, uh, program for people of color, they're gonna be training and placing 32 Mm. folks this summer in wilderness therapy programs around the US. So my hope is that 50 years from now, accessibility will be to whomever Mm. wants to take advantage of outdoor and adventure-based programming, not just middle-class, upper middle-class white folks Mm. in particular, and that it doesn't become, that it gets much, much better In that accessibility, and that there's value and support given by insurance companies with the unfortunate control that they have financially um, to make sure that connecting with nature from an eco psychology perspective, from a nature based perspective, from experiential, the idea of doing, not just sitting and talking, that those approaches will be valued as much as whatever the flavor of the day is that cognitive behavioral therapy has now in terms of its alleged evidence-based practice. Mm. You mean McDonald's of psychotherapy, right?
2: (laughs) I I didn't say that for the record. I did. (laughs) (laughs) The Cognitive Behavioral Tsunami. That's a great book, by the way, very Australian focused, but it talks about how government policy has led to the takeover of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it really has very little to do with, Great evidence or anything like that, but Russell, thank you so much for your time. It's just it's always a pleasure. Yeah, to, it's always a pleasure to connect. And in my difficult times, I've appreciated your mentorship in that way of navigating everything that that we all navigate day to day. So, um, and your and your friendship, of course, I uh, I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, and I, I appreciate having another uh, another person that in in the Portland metro area here that I can chat with about adventure therapy because there's a uh, not not a ton of us, there's some of us, but it's exciting to to be able to have you on the podcast finally and be able to share your perspectives with our listenership and with the world. So thank you so much for coming on here and uh, chatting with us today, Russell. It's been excellent.
0: Yeah, and thanks thanks again to you all for the work that you do and and. In- all the different arenas that you're in and putting yourselves out there with with a podcast and presentations and research and Daniel, you getting involved with the uh, Therapeutic Adventure Professional Group, Leadership Council with the Association for Experiential Education, our hopeful offering of an event in the late spring uh, for folks in the Portland metro area and AEE Northwest, et cetera. Yeah, you're in
1: Portland and you've listened this far june what did we say 20th uh
0: sixth i think Sixth. okay yeah first saturday of june
1: contact us sometime in june uh whatever russell said is probably more right
2: (laughs) i'm plugging my ears because once again i'll be very jealous not to be all right team well thanks so much and daniel yeah congratulations i don't know when your term starts or when they'll fire you but great work. Yeah, i, I don't think they've like
1: figured it out or announced it so yet yeah, but i'm excited to be able to contribute a little bit more to the apg and that way in leadership council should be a lot of fun
2: heck yeah awesome thanks so much everybody thank you guys